0: hey everybody welcome to cook pod the podcast where nobody can hear you scream i'm peter barrett my guest this week is travis kaufman of folks beer brewery in brooklyn he was one of the founding partners of frankie's empire and has since gone on to create one of the most interesting breweries in the whole city. He's a talented guy, he's a smart guy, and he's a guy who gets shit done. So we talked about all of that in their brand new space in Red Hook, just down the road from the original brewery space, which is being enlarged with a much larger uh, brewing facility and tasting room. So there's a lot going on, a lot of expansion, which is not coincidental because, as I said, he's talented and he gets shit done. We talked in the office of the new Red Hook space, which is pretty bare bones, just getting up and running. So it's a little reverberant because they haven't yet put up any of the blacklight Jim Morrison tapestries that I'm sure are being delivered any day now. Imagine if you will, that we're in a beautiful cathedral or something. It's exciting, the space has a ton of potential. Um, He's got big ideas. And here's me talking to Travis Kaufman, In the new multi-use space that's going to be part brewery, part event space, part offices, and all interesting. Check them out at folksbeer.com, FBbrewery on Instagram. excited to see i mean the other space is exciting enough let alone all the potential that you've got here this is like
1: you know it's a really big lift you know they're building the equipment but it's you know three years coming we designed it we originally designed it for that space and then it was delayed and we found this space in the meantime we're like well it's too big for over there anyway look at this spot you know i just want to give myself options as well
0: Yeah. yeah yeah
1: and you've got a lot now yeah. I mean, it's it's a lot to manage. It's like a, a wild ride, let me tell you. Sure. <laughs> You're going to have to staff
0: up, I imagine.
1: We're pretty staffed up for... You are? Yeah, because the beer we're making now is so... the way we're doing it is so labor-intensive. It translates to four times as much beer on the beer system.
0: Huh. Yeah.
1: Interesting. Same amount of labor. Wow. Same schedule, essentially. And it becomes easier on everyone. Economies
0: of scale, right?
1: Yeah, well, automation, scale. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but scale with beer is, is what it's all about. Yeah, because and this is this is year what now for this for Folksboro? Yeah, uh, we started in twenty fourteen. We opened the taste room in twenty
0: sixteen, and uh, so this is you know four years, I guess. And the the you said the opening date a couple months away, so you'll be you'll be fully open by for spring for with the new. Expanded space on the other building. Yeah, absolutely, and um, you know we'll have a
1: little additional hospitality space over there as well. You met Zach. He's sort of ramping up to right.
0: to do a food program, and we're gonna try cool. to do more events. And this a is it like sit down kind of situation, or more like catering a, a ballroom kind of space?
1: He um, right now we do a very casual service where people order at the bar, and you know depending on how busy they may or may not even get a number to take back to their table, right. and then we'll bring it to them, or they'll come. They'll just kind of wait for it. I think we're going to stick with that, but we're also on some nights going to do a supper club with Zach and he's, he has a bit of a following cause he did a Oaxacan street food supper club, nice. um, for a while. So he's going to continue that and we'll, you know, start with like 20
0: seats at a time and try to do a really nice job. Yeah. And, yeah. Build it organically. Build it. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. So, um, but you're from Michigan, right? But not the UP, just northern... The Mich- northern lower Continent- peninsula. Continental Michigan. Yeah, uh, the northern lower peninsula. Everyone knows
1: where Mackinac City is. Right. We're, we're just south of that and right. on the Lake Michigan side, and a you, little town called Harbor
0: Springs. And you um, you said, I believe, you said you come from like a, hunt, a family of hunters and outdoor people?
1: Yeah, well, farmers. farmers. Um, my parents were um, Mennonites. They were raised in Mennonite communities in southern Michigan and, mm-hmm. and, and met there. Um, in Midland, Michigan, and left the church and were more progressive, you know, than their family, but their family was already pretty progressive, my right. grandfather. Um, well, and Mennonites are almost sort of like the progressive version of Amish, right? Correct. They come in like every flavor. My grandfather worked for Dow Chemical, Okay. You know, yeah. For no example. horse and
0: buggy situation.
1: They also had horses and also made sauerkraut every year and mm-hmm. had a giant farm, yeah, as did my parents. So, yeah, I grew up with a, a milk cow and um weaned on goat's milk from our goat and, you know, one of my chores was milking a goat for a while. That's cool. Chickens, livestock, got to see everything from, you know, slaughtering animals to fostering animals in a giant veggie garden. Yeah, Yeah, that's
0: good, it's good. I think it's, it's a terrific way to learn how the world works.
1: Yeah, definitely, you learn a lot of stuff. You know, I grew up just naturally with a lot of mechanical aptitude and curiosity uh and you know sauerkraut actually i mentioned it is is something that got me into fermentation because mm-hmm. i had this idea of you know you take a thing the right thing because my dad was passionate about the the sauerkraut yeah. you know, the cabbage that he grew as well and you treat it a certain way, add the right ingredients and then
0: keep it at a temperature over time yeah. and it transforms into something even more delicious. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, yeah, my grandfather made pickles and I learned from him. Indirectly, he didn't sit me down and teach me, but I watched him do it and it yeah. stuck in my head. Yeah. So, you know, Thirty something years later, when I move upstate and you know become a hipster gentleman farmer, I actually knew how to do it to make lacto fermentation. Pick- yeah, in his place. case, it was cucumber pickles, you know, okay. dill, dill and garlic. But uh, yes, the principle applies to anything. Amazing. Yeah. Did Did he teach you to put uh, grapevines in there? He didn't. In, in fact, it's funny. I'm about to write a piece um, that uh, discloses this. Uh, the two ways in which I upgraded his recipe to make it uh, better for me, and the the using um, leaves. Uh, is one of them. I use actually a few different kinds of leaves because they do different, slightly different things. Oh, interesting. Um, I never, I didn't grow up on a farm, I, I come from my mom's side of the family, did a lot of cooking, but there's something about the way that gardening, just working in the dirt, pulling food out of the dirt, and then in the case of pickling, you know, watching it transform into something else, or in case of, you know, you can do the same thing with milk and turn it into cheese. You, you understand that, that these microbes are there for you yeah. um, in a very, very fundamental way. Yeah, you, can, you, can, you don't even have to train them, you just have to set them up at the right temperature and pH or salinity or whatever, and they go to work. Yeah, it's incredible. So what got you into beer besides just being a teenager who, you know, wanted I mean, to drink I mean, that was beer?
1: essentially it. You know, you match the, the impetus of a teenager who wants to drink with uh, this do-it-yourself mentality that comes from living on a farm, and, you know, we weren't, you know, we didn't have a lot of money on hand ever, so we always made our own stuff, and we're kind of into that, and that's, you know, very much a spirit from my my parents' past as well. So, it just made sense, What I I was interested in drinking, I was interested in in fermenting, Yeah, and so I started early, and fermented all sorts of stuff around the farm. There's some over 40-year-old rhubarb wine up there that's still, Pretty it's it's good. good, really. Yeah, it's and still that's because it's so acidic that it—it's acidic, yeah. It, and there's so much tannins and the uh, the rhubarb as but well. Is it dry
0: or is there residual sugar? To oh, it? there's RS for sure.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not like totally over the top, but it's it's like you so know, you're into some like uh, some like just sweet riesling territory there between yeah. the acidity and the sugar. It's yeah. like it's never going to go bad. Yeah, exactly. It's it's pretty well balanced, but you know, it's, well, I'd like it's to try delicious. that. Yeah, there's there's bottles. And open. you made it
0: when you were a teenager this yeah. rhubarb wine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how did you learn? I mean, obviously you're you know making pickles and things, but like in terms of the specifics of, um, you know, like you use an airlock to make alcohol that you don't use for pickles or vinegar, for sure. example. Like how did you, is there some kind of home brewing book that you found? Or I learned, uncle- I learned beer making from a friend
1: uh, in Michigan and he taught me how to build a system out of five gallon buckets. And you drill a million holes in it for the water ton. And, you know, taught me basically how to do an all grain, you know, steep method. Mm-hmm. Um, that worked really well, and it actually made great beer. Um, and the water in Michigan is kind of perfect for for beer, so that helped a lot. In too. what way? What's uh, uh, what the makes it minerality? Fun. Yeah. So it has a lot of calcium in it, and and just the pH is like real really good for that. So it's a little that would
0: make it a little basic, a little mm-hmm.
1: bit. Yeah. So it's, it's higher than seven. Um, yeah. Not only that, the salts and and the minerals just really make the beer delicious as really, well. Really? They just add, so it's like you're using mineral water, Yeah, right? exactly. like, like Perrier or something to make your beer. Yeah, yeah. And really clean as well, so yeah. it makes just cleaning everything a little easier as well. And so this buddy of yours, the, the he showed you the system. He showed me the system, taught me the basics of how to brew beer, you know, in the spirit of the prohibition style of beer making in Michigan, mm-hmm. I would say, that, that okay. people still execute up there yeah. at their homes right yeah um, and if you do it properly it's okay it uses bleach unfortunately it as a sanitizer but then you rinse everything with sanitized water so you're not putting bleach and
0: everything it's, it's right. tedious but it, it works I think and, and this, so this was this was a while ago right we're talking what 20, is, 20 30 um, years ago yeah probably 95 okay and and so back then there were sort of homebrew shops and stuff. There was really barely an internet at that point. So where are you, like, obviously you had local sources for grain, but yep. in terms of malting, you weren't malting stuff yourself, were you, or?
1: No, there was, there was a homebrew store near us. There was? Uh, yeah, Pete's Pipe and Barrel in Petoskey, Michigan. Nice. So that was a good source. But I was, you know, I went to college in 1993. So oh. I was, I had access to all of Southern Michigan as well. And so I'd hunt down brew shops down there. Where'd and, you go? LBN College in in Southern Michigan. Okay, LBN Michigan. Did you? What did you study? I forget. You told me. I studied uh, biology and earth sciences uh, for three years, and then um, fell in love with photography and switched to art. Nice. As a young gentleman does. Yeah, I endorse that. Dude,
0: I went to art school twice.
1: And then I I actually ended up leaving Albion and going to University of New Mexico uh, to graduate. And I graduated with BFA
0: in uh, sculpture and photography. Wow. Before before the digital camera. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's funny. (laughs) I had to relearn photography um, because I learned it in dark rooms and stuff. I, I can't say I miss it, honestly. Yeah. Uh, I
1: loved it. I still, I still
0: like the dark room. I carry mine around with me, hoping I'll get it, get to set it well, up. Well, you got space now. Man. I do actually. Yeah, In the basement, right? Yeah. Um, so, at what point? I mean, I assume you had various jobs and stuff, right? And you knocked around Michigan for a little bit, or did you? Because you went to New Mexico, did you come to New York right away after that, or you bounced around a little?
1: I lived in New Mexico for two years for school, and um, I was very ready to leave when I did. But actually, now I miss it. Uh, it's an interesting place. There's there's a lot of great things about it. Um, but I pretty much left directly after I graduated and moved to Portland, Oregon, mm-hmm. and lived there for a couple of years before coming to New York for graduate school.
0: And were you brewing that whole time?
1: Uh, not. I was in New Mexico, but not in Portland, Oregon. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the only city that I didn't brew in. I brewed in
0: hmm. everywhere okay. else, yeah. And what'd you go to grad school for?
1: I came to New York to go to SVA for computer art.
0: Okay. Uh, and so I you got an MFA were, in computer art. At that point, you'd committed to vis- being a visual artist of some kind.
1: Yeah, well, that's what I Yeah, I thought. And um, you know, I was, at that point, sort of interested in making a living as well. Yeah. So um, SVA was, you had a really good art program with a, a really great professional track record at the yeah, time. Yeah.
0: And were you thinking like um, like 3D sort of animation, like movies? I wanted
1: to be uh, an art director for, for new media, essentially. Yeah. And is that
0: what you sort of started a career in?
1: Um, yeah, I did. I, I graduated from SVA in 2002, mm-hmm. unfortunately, and the, the economy had changed a lot from when I went in. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, uh, that was what my buddy called the winter net. Yeah, the winter net. So I had to get creative with my career. Um, I was able, I was lucky enough to teach for a while at mm-hmm. Hunter College and NYU, oh, cool. um, and I did that for three or four years as an adjunct professor, um, and started a little freelance business making websites, which is, was not great, um, and showed me that I definitely did not want to work on a computer for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. And, um, definitely you know, hear that. There wasn't great opportunities anyway, so I joined my my buddy Frank, who was opening a restaurant in Brooklyn in 2004,
0: um, and we opened Frankie's on Court Street in Brooklyn. Yeah. What, so how did you get from, I mean, I, I definitely understand not wanting to work in a screen, but it was just because this friend, did he have some kind of restaurant background? or Frank had been in the restaurant industry for 20 years. Yeah, okay. yeah he
1: had a lot of experience. And his uh, partner, Frank, also, you know, they had grown up together in, in Queens uh, and sort of both took different paths back to New York City at that moment, but had both become chefs at separate paths and really hadn't communicated with each other. Hmm. In 20 years, but met back up just before Frankie's was opened, and, and did it as a partnership. Okay. And that's why there's no apostrophe in the, the name. Because it's, it's two Frankies. It's two Frankies, yeah. Didn't um, know that. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, they, you know, we, we experienced a lot of success with that restaurant really fast. Yeah. It was great. Yeah. Um, so that was what year that it opened? 2004. Four, right? Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I had, you know, as a child, I. Child. When I was 13 years old, I wrote, got on my bike and rode down the street and uh, the road in Michigan and got a job at the only business within bike riding distance, yep. but it happened to be a restaurant. Ah. And was, you know, f- from all accounts, a stellar bus boy for four years nice. of my, my high school career. Here. Yeah.
0: So you knew it from the inside.
1: Yeah, and I mean a love for food. I mean my family is obsessed with food, and we're the family that is eating and talks about our next meal and plans elaborate meals and gets whole animals to cook on the farm and and, um, generally
0: bonds over food. Yeah, growing up, we didn't do the killing part, but we did. uh, We definitely would spend lunch talking about what we were going to eat for dinner. Yeah, and my mother is the the pie
1: queen of of Northern Michigan. Nice. Sure. Is that an official title? She has a plaque somewhere? No, self-proclaimed. <laughs> self-proclaimed. We give it to her, though. <laughs> That's good. That's good.
0: Um, all right, so how did you get from Frankie's to brewing? You were still interested in homebrewing, or did it, was there space been, that you were able to start up?
1: Yeah, I had been brewing that entire time, you know,
0: as a hobby. And sorry, so when you were brewing as a hobby just for your own consumption, had you already kind of zeroed in on, you know, the beers of your sort of heritage, German, German-American kind of... or I had
1: an idea but I didn't really fully understand what that meant at that point but yes, yeah, right. I had this idea that I wanted to use the least amount of ingredients and mm-hmm. use the highest quality malts and make a beer that was well balanced and, and malt focused yeah. and easy to drink which I think is a very German sentiment yeah. you know, overall. Um, but I didn't really understand the technicalities of what made German beer German beer at that point. Right. You know, That was something I, I sort of discovered later. And that's why I got into multi-step mashes, and eventually now, you know, we're building a twenty-barrel decoction system here in Brooklyn
0: um, because of that idea. Yeah. Um, well, I so so go into that a little bit. I mean, I know I know about obviously the Reinheitsgebot, which is you know the beer can only have four things in it, yeah. which is why I'm interested um, when you have that few variables, or that when you have that few fundamental yeah. pieces of it there are a lot of variables and a lot of decisions that you make at different stages of the production will change the character dramatically. Sure. And so I'm sort of interested in how, um, given that really sort of heavily ramified decision tree, yeah. how it is that you sort of carved out these particular paths as being the, the most rewarding in terms of the product that you wanted. And
1: I was trying to make the sort of the, the lightest beer the most delicious, possibly, mm-hmm. you know, possible way. I was trying to make the the best beer out of the least amount of ingredients and the mm-hmm. lightest beer. And to do that, um, I was doing a lot of brewing and just trying to focus in on technique and, and cleanliness and all the the stuff that you do to just get rid of all the variables so you can really start, yeah. you know, focusing on what the beer's doing. Yeah. And uh, found a recipe I, I wanted to work with and pretty much did make anything else after that. I wasn't like an experimenter. I just wanted to like make this beer that I had in my head. Right, right, you know? right.
0: And, but it took a while, I assume, to get there,
1: right? It did, yeah, years. And I, I had I had a recipe that I was working with. And um, to take it to the next level, I, I learned that I really had to get into multi-step mashing, which is, you know, most beers in the craft beer movement is made by a single mash infusion where you just take the barley and you... Put water at a certain temperature on it, and it converts the starches into soluble sugars. And, and you get a bunch of like this bucket of different types of sugars, right? And that's it. And you're really relying on the quality of the, the malt itself to get you know the sugars out of it, right? And you get a rainbow of sugars ranging in from you know completely fermentable or highly fermentable to not fermentable at all, and uh-huh. the ones on the that end of the range, the, the yeast can't. Metabolize yeah. it. Yeah, they're just broken or caramelized, and and the yeast doesn't know what to do with it and yes. it can't can't digest it, so it stays in the beer. It's residual sugar, mm-hmm. and um, in that single infusion style, there's a there's a decent amount of that inherent, and that's that style of making beer, and so you get a consistent product, um, but it always has this this weight to it from these unfermentable sugars, mm-hmm. and. As a brewer, that's sweetness in right. the end product. So knowing that you will usually bump up the hops a little bit to sort of balance out right. you know with a little bit of bitter, yeah. And that's essentially right there. What I just said is why IPA is the prevalent beer in the American craft brewery movement. Right. Is that exact reason because inherently in all those beers because of the, the way they're mashing there is a significant amount of residual sugar in the product and you have to balance it out with
0: hops right and And that sugar also apart from it doesn't really read as sweet necessarily but it gives it a very round Mm mouthfeel right and it makes it sort of coat your mouth gives it a velvety taste texture
1: it's like the most delicious caramel malted flavors you know it's it's really great but if you're trying to make a light lager or really light ale you don't want to over hop it and you can't have all this residual residual sugar in it. So to really get below five percent, four percent, you know, or even to five percent, you need to do a different style of mashing, right. where you're taking grains that have been malted less or modified a little less. So the starches are a little bit more complex. Uh, and to get them out, you sort of have to massage them through a range of temperatures. I see. Um, so you're you're catching them at different temperatures to sort of release more. It's a much slower process, um, maybe five hours versus you know two hours for the mash schedule. And you're releasing different uh, enzymes at different temperatures, sort of like very slowly to let them just sort of like convert the right the right sugars at this level, the right sugars at this level, and the right sugars at this level. And very few of the ones you don't want. Very few of the unfermentable ones. And you end up with a much more highly fermentable wort at the end of it. Sure. Um, and, it, and so it goes basically dry or, f- or nearly fully dry. And you can make a really, really dry beer without overhopping it. And that's essentially you know what I discovered I was looking for in beer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it's a very German idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a very efficient idea because you're using less grains and you're using your brain and technique to make a lighter beer right. out of what, what Arguably a more delicious beer out of less ingredients. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I really latched on to that idea. I was like, this is amazing I ha- this is what I want to do, you know, as a beer maker and you know when I eventually Thought I was gonna or when I was doing it uh, on a professional level. I was like, this is I ha- this is what I want to do and so even now we use a, a direct fire system and a Herms mm-hmm. coil to do it but we do a multi-step mash on all our beers or tailor the mash to the, the style much more so than i think most breweries do
0: yeah
1: um i think the the american craft brewery movement is is everything and, and people do all sorts of different stuff yeah. so there's definitely people step mashing and and whatnot and there's even some decoction breweries um open now on the west coast but In general, the technique is single-mash infusion and to the point where most systems are two-barrel systems that probably aren't even, you know, the mash tun might not even be heated, you know, it might just be designed to mix it in hot water and that's it.
0: Hmm. Yeah, And then it gets laudered. And and you came to this... I assume in your career as a as a home brewer, it coincided kind of with the rise of the of the internet. So, with each passing month, there are a lot more resources, I would think, online and communities and forums, right, where people yeah. are discussing all the arcane details of this.
1: Yeah, and you know, as a curious person, you know, when you get interested in something, you just talk a lot about it and read a lot about it and grab like every get your hands on every single piece of information you can you yeah. can find. And I got interested in. German brewery texts and German styles and just read and read and read and tried to understand. Yeah. You do you, know. you read
0: German? I do not, unfortunately. Oh. Oh would be great <laughs> yeah uh, well like your computer will translate it now for you pretty well um, so how did d- tell me how the how the business kind of came about then from from Frankie's to the brewery
1: sure I mean we had um, we had a lot of success we opened five restaurants over seven years or something yeah, yeah. including a cafe in there three of which are open still mm-hmm. um, we closed the one on the Lower East Side um, just because of Lease issues, um, yeah. but it was open for six or seven years, uh, and the cafe up on Court Street closed closed as well. But I'm, I'm, they may or may not open that; not sure what yeah. they're working on up there. They have something going on. I'm sorry, I forgot where I was headed.
0: Uh, just how the how the brewery
1: came. You know. uh, so we were sort of at the end of this big growth spurt, and um, I have to tell you that. Running a restaurant over time is a lot less fun than opening a restaurant. I'm sure. Um, you know what I really thrived on when, in restaurants was you know taking all that chaos and ideas and putting it into a you know some sort of order and system and and operating it and going through the excitement of opening yeah. the doors for the first time and dealing with the first customers and training the staff and making the menus and and developing the bar programs you know all that stuff is amazing I love creating but you know as director of operations for Frankie's uh, it was just like a drudge you yeah. know it's like phone calls at 6 a.m. phone calls at you know midnight it was you know pretty bad and um, I generally don't don't recommend it um, as had, a lifestyle more than more than
0: one person has told me the same exact thing I love opening restaurants and I hate running yeah <laughs>
1: Uh, So, you know, I was at a point where, uh, you know, I had a great relationship with Frank and Frank, and um, they were encouraging me to, you know, find my dreams if I wanted to do something else. And and, um, I had this idea that uh, Brooklyn needed breweries at this point, and this is, you know, this is prior to the current boom, you know, this is probably 2009, Mm -hmm. something like that. And now I guess a little later, 2011. Mm -hmm. um, And I I saw from a beer buyer's perspective, the lack of choices in New York City um, for local beer. And um, I also, you know, just as a consumer had just moved there from, or I guess at that point I'd been here for a while, but I'd moved from Portland, Oregon, who had an amazing craft beer um, scene. And the ones that were available to me, I wasn't that excited about. Um, and Brooklyn Brewery was representing the local the local beer brand, and it wasn't, you know, I didn't understand it at the time, but it's not, it wasn't even made in Brooklyn, yeah. and it was made on sort of like the soulless, giant, you know, contract brewery upstate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I was just like, what is going on here? Like, I do not understand. Yeah. And someone's got to take care of this. Yeah. And the brewery nowhere this hip cannot have a brewery. <laughs> yeah, this is ridiculous. Um, and and just from buying it, I knew that it, I would buy it, and yeah. I knew you know everyone else would buy it too. Um, so, uh, and then um, while I took my sweet time opening a brewery over the next five years or so, right. a lot a lot popped up, but you know we're still uh, well below the the national mean, um, which I think. I just looked at these numbers, but the national mean for barrels uh, per person or per capita is Mm -hmm. 0.9 and New York is at, you know, 0.2 or just under 0.3, yeah, 0.03. I'm sorry.
0: So New York does not drink a lot of beer.
1: They do. They drink a ton of beer. They just don't have a lot of breweries. Oh, okay. So it's
0: production, it's not consumption.
1: Yeah. There's, uh, you know. Why
0: do you think that? And that's the whole state. So it's not just a real estate in the city thing. It's it's. That's just New York City. Oh, it's the city. Yeah, the
1: city. New York State's uh, a little better, Mm -hmm. um, but there's still there's still a lot of room. But the the East Coast followed the West Coast um, Mm -hmm. for the that craft beer culture for sure and. New York is just a hard place to open a business, so yeah. it's, you know, it's a little more difficult to, to start up a brewery. And, sure, so without, if you hadn't had
0: the capital and the, and the team from the restaurant, it would have been a lot harder for you to get your thing up and running.
1: I mean, I started it with no money. I started with my um, salary, basically, as mm-hmm. the um, director of operations, and got the license with a very small brew system And wasn't even sure if it was legal to do that. You know, there's very little information out there about, you know, starting a brewery, especially at that time. Yeah. And uh, so I was like, well, this is it. Let's give this a shot. Um, This is an impossibly small brewery. I can't make any money, but let's just see if we can get it legalized. Right. And they approved it. They never even came to check. It's amazing. Wow. And um, so I was like, well, I'm going to open a brewery now. So, um, you know. Prior to that, I got out of my partnership with Frank and Frank so that I could get the license there, um, and took over our storage space for the restaurants so it was home brewing. And then eventually took over the lease, and that's where the Laqueer uh, Street location
0: is is now. Got it. Um, yeah. So and so more recently, then you've you've expanded the lease to include the entire ground floor. Is that what happened?
1: Yeah. So shortly after um, we got our license, or a couple of years, they um, there was a. Someone at the end of a 30-year lease had the bulk of the building, um, and they uh, were electrical contractors, and were just moving out um, and after 30 years. And we had been looking for a spot to expand. You know we couldn't stay in what was our storage space yes. forever we knew. Yeah. It just wasn't big enough to, to really function as a, a production brewery. Um, and we, we went ahead and took it. We had great relationships. The landlady the DeVito's and um, we took it over and at that point the, the laws actually changed because prior to that there was as a microbrewery you couldn't have a tasting room and then all of a sudden you could have a tasting room um, they changed the laws when the uh, the farm brewery license came yeah. out when they added that they also sure. granted yeah, the, that was uh, a big deal yeah it's a huge deal because prior to that you couldn't walk into a brewery and buy a beer yeah yeah, you could buy a shot, you know, like a, a glass and right. you could get a free, be- a, a free beer with it or something like that, but you couldn't, you know, just go in and drink beer like yeah. a bar. Um, so that was huge for us and we, you know, we capitalized on that, opened that little tasting room. Mm-hmm. Um, so
0: what year was it that you got started, like you got your license? 2014. 14. Yep. Okay. Um, and how, um, like what did you open with in terms of your product line? What, how many beers were you making?
1: So I had, uh, I was focusing on, I didn't have a lot of cellar space, that I didn't have a, a strong glycol chiller, so I couldn't make lagers yet. Oh, okay. So I was focusing on this, uh, sort of that ale recipe from my homebrew days, yeah. which was sort of, you know, a northern German style of ale um, that I called at the time German-American Pale Ale because uh-huh. it, was, it was a mashup of, of, of those styles. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was named Morning Dew, and we still make a version of that beer, but it's 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 not the not the same. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not the original recipe. No, it's much better. Uh, but uh, I offered that, and then I took that recipe and made a dark version of it mm-hmm. with some um, dark rye and some other grains and uh, called that Echo Maker. Mm-hmm. And those were sort of my dark and light beers that, that I rolled into the market with. And um, soon after that, got into making... Lagers. Mm-hmm. And then once we were wrapped our heads around, you know, going, you know, doing that and a. Because it's a more involved process. It's a more involved process, and there's also a lot more room for falling off the rails yeah. uh, as far as off flavors. Um, ah, okay. The yeast is very finicky, it wants what it wants, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, the types of sugars that you produce are harder to produce um, f- to make those light lagers, you know, because right. of the reasons I mentioned before. And, and there's temperature control involved and, and temperature control involved there's fermentation you know temperatures that are are really um, important and if you mess up in any way you know the off flavors come through really quickly mm-hmm. in that scenario not you know, a lot to hide behind not a lot to hide behind yeah so um, that's been you know that's been a pursuit of ours and we'll continue to Sort of be our focus, as especially as we open our new location.
0: And you said when you by the time you opened, you said there were a bunch of other breweries in Brooklyn, right? Because it had taken you a while to. Get yeah, there. I think
1: I think at that point, you know, at least ten or twelve of them have mm-hmm. popped up, mm-hmm. and you know now maybe we're at close to thirty or a little over thirty.
0: And so, how was the uh, how was the reception when you got going? Did you get off to a good start?
1: It was great. You know, I was lucky enough to, to have a built-in clientele and prime eats, so I had this you. Yeah. Know, they were pretty much able to make everything. I would, I would um, take everything I could make at that point, point. Yeah. and uh, also had just a great platform for feedback and, and you know, promoting myself there. Yeah. We generally just, you know, put it in the back of my car and drive it around. Uh, you know I had a handful of clients. You were were your own rep basically. I was my own yeah I made the beer um, I cleaned all the kegs and I delivered the beer it was an interesting time for sure. Did you have partners like business partners it was just you? I had opened it with you know uh, the brew system you saw today which was you know a glorified homebrew system yeah Um, and that was it so I didn't need investors you know I think I took out like a personal Loan to buy a couple of those fermenters, and I just like, I'm gonna do this. And it was a really intense learning curve, and I I definitely had some help um, from a a couple of professional brewers that I eventually hired to help me, you know, Uh make the transition, understand, you know, the difference between home brewing and and professional brewing in in a
0: meaningful way. So what are, what are a couple of those major differences apart from, I mean, scrupulous hygiene, I guess, factors in at every level, but, but in terms of scaling, like what, what are some of the tricks that you don't know as a home brewer?
1: It's mostly equipment related, Uh um, and timing, um, because once you go up to bigger scale, chilling your wort takes longer, but you don't want it to because you'll get off flavors. So you have to figure out how to do it quickly. Um, and just the way you handle beer on a big scale is really important because the amount of oxygen that you put into it at certain stages is very important. Mm-hmm. You know, the amount of oxygen in the vessels that you're going into is really important sometimes. And so like
0: wine, you want to minimize that. Is that the Some,
1: for the most part? For the most part, yes. At other points, we're actually pumping oxygen into it, but oh. um, for the most part, yeah, we try to minimize contact with oxygen. Um, generally oxygen, especially in lagers, um, will result in, in off
0: flavors. And, um, and so then you, you hired these guys as you started to increase Mm -hmm. production and become, and did your product line increase from one light, one light and one dark? Yeah, Yeah,
1: we started making more. We started making
0: a, a a dark lager and another pale ale
1: and, um, built it up and, um, things really kind of catalyzed when I hired uh, my current head brewer, uh, Joey Pepper, Mm -hmm. um, who is one of this year's star chefs, rising chefs. Wow. and he uh, brought a lot to the table just with sort of like knowledge of the industry and beer knowledge. He was working at Torst uh, in Greenpoint um, mm-hmm. and just had a really keen um, instrument yeah. and really understood beer in a way that you know, was both a good healthy dose of science and a healthy dose of aesthetics, which is, is rare. Usually you find people are, you know, more science-oriented, but yeah. can't really taste it or people who can taste sure. it and have no idea how to make it. Right, right. So, it's like you're an
0: artist or an engineer, but not both.
1: Yeah, so he, he's he's sort of a, a great mixture. He um, was just a very curious and advanced home brewer hmm. um, and, you know, another person who's just, you know, obsessive and curious and reads a lot and does a lot of research and is able to sort of make intuitive leaps and put... put Things together and, and make it work, and so he brought a lot of recipes and improvements to our line as well. And he's, you know, he's responsible for our new line of the sour beers with the the local fruit. The, yeah, I wanted to talk to you about those. The glow are so
0: not something. Yeah, t- so tell me how those came about. They're really interesting. So, um,
1: they're based on a historical style of beer from northern Germany called Berliner Weisse, uh-huh. um, which is a a kettle sour beer, um, historically, where they would basically take the malted barley and heat it up to, you know, probably the mid-hundreds, like 120, depending on um, the brewery and what they're doing, and let it sit overnight. And the um, lactobacillus that lives in, in the, the malted barley uh, will create lactic acid with the starches overnight. And so you're just be basically creating lactic acid, which is a pleasantly sour compound and Mm -hmm. and the right balance Um, and you come back and you boil that whole thing in the morning and just kind of make beer out of that but it has a certain amount of lactic acid just locked in there Mm. Um, but by boiling it you kill the lactobacillus and then you know and then you cool it down and then you pitch yeast and then you pitch ale yeast into it and ferment it so we do a more sort of scientific approach to that Mm -hmm. Um, it's called tank souring Mm -hmm. so we we basically go make the beer first. We make a small beer out of it, go through the process of, you know, the step mash and draw off the wort and put it in a, um, a fermenter, but don't cool it down. We keep it at 90 degrees, 95 degrees. And then we pitch two strains of lactobacillus in there. And um, let oh, it. So you're
0: adding the bacterial culture. Yeah, we do. we are relying on what's native it. in the grain.
1: And it's just, you know, a little more structured and dependable for us mm-hmm. right now sure. that to do Kettle souring on a on a commercial scale is is possible, but it takes a lot of confidence and experience to do um, yeah. to do right. And there's
0: risk, right? Because if you
1: blow and a batch, then it's it's garbage. And there's risk. Yeah. So this is a, this is a somewhat more safe way, and and for us creates a really clean version of the beer because um, we take that then once it's down to the proper pH and boil it again. We add a little salt and um, hops and basically put it back in a fermenter at, at pitch temperature 68 degrees and then pitch um, a wheat ale yeast on hmm. top of it let it ferment and that alone is a, is a delicious beer if you yeah. just let it ferment out it's bright and you know amazing um see why napoleon called his style the champagne of the north yeah at some point um and then what we like to do as well at that point just as it's ending it's ale fermentation is we'll fill a fermenter with um, whole fruit from the Hudson Valley or sometimes orange zest and orange juice that we've prepared yeah. and rack the beer onto that and let it finish its fermentation or maybe re-ferment if it's raspberries or something like that. Mm-hmm. The ale will actually ferment the, uh, the raspberries a little bit and then that integrate all that fruit flavor. Yeah. and um, color too. And color. But it am- of the raspberries, it's beautiful. So Joey's walking me through this and I'm like, I'm really into this. I, I love the style already. I've been sort of addicted to this uh, version from Montreal, from Duduciel. Ciel, um, their Solstice et mm-hmm. is a raspberry sour wheat beer that when I first tasted, sort of slapped me in the face with a sense of memory of eating raspberries in the field,
0: uh, you know, behind my parents' farm when well, I was a kid. I think we talked about this actually uh, last summer. Raspberries are quite sour. Yep. They don't have a ton of sugar. And exactly. so the, the, eating a raspberry is really more of a sour than a sweet experience. Yeah.
1: Especially if you're in the field, because, you know, you're, you get some sweet ones, and then you get a yeah. couple of, like, underripe ones. But Black just, or,
0: Blackberries get really sweet, but raspberries yeah. generally don't. Yeah.
1: And that was part of the thrill, you know, that sweet tart kind of yeah. sensation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. nature's candy, kid.
0: literally. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
1: Uh, so, you know, I started drinking a lot of that particular beer, and Joey sort of was like, you like that style? Why don't we make one? Mm-hmm. Or I'll, let's make that beer as like a, you know, let's see if we can do it. And he had this technique down uh, from his home brewing days, actually. He was making huh. um, these Berliner Weiss styles in his apartment um, with some success. And he had been using some citrus zest and, and there's that. And I think as a home brewer, his most successful one, I think he said, was the Yuzu. Mm.
0: Um, Probably doesn't take a whole lot because it's pretty pungent.
1: No, when you use zest, especially something strong like Yuzu, you need lot less
0: yeah so what's the ratio like and i'm sure it's different like you said citrus zest versus say raspberries like ratio by weight to the volume of beer or something i mean how do you for whole fruit it's usually about two pounds
1: per gallon Uh um which if you put that in the context of you know 300 gallons of beer it's a lot of raspberries in in one place yeah but you get everything out of the raspberries because when when they come out of the fermenter, they're they're actually almost they're pale, mm. um, and the beer is bright red. Um,
0: yeah, the color on that one's really phenomenal.
1: Yeah, but it's you know that's that's kind of the, the purpose of the beer is to to capture and, and um, preserve those those flavors, you know, because you're adding fruit and all those delicate aromatics that you don't often get in beer to mm-hmm. this beer. And it preserves them with alcohol lactic acid and salt mm-hmm. and it really locks everything in
0: what's the salt percentage because it's, it's really just enhances the flavor you don't taste salt it's really
1: light yeah it's just under perception um uh, i don't know the exact because I, I uh I,
0: there was a period it was quite a while ago but i read something how if you put when you're making an espresso if you put just a little sprinkle of salt in the in the basket after you tamp it down yeah and then that it just brightens it up. And it's actually, uh, it's a noticeable thing. Um, the uh, salt in like, in, in levels lower than you can taste really does just enhance everything else that's around it without uh, bringing attention to itself.
1: It definitely sort of like amplifies flavors and um, for this beer especially, it creates a balance in your mouth yeah. That be- and and with the acidity, it sort of like creates this like vibration where, uh, you know, I hate to say it, but it actually kind of dances on your palates mm-hmm. because you can't like quite pin it down. And at different times, you know, depending on what you're eating or your mood or whatever, it's so close to the same pH and salinity as your mouth oh. that it, it changes even if you're, you know, you change the pH in your mouth slightly, it'll, it'll bump
0: it one way or another. Well, and, and that's one of the, that's the thing, the single thing that I found most interesting about those when we were drinking them last summer was that they didn't do the thing that beer for me has very often done, which is opposite to what wine tends to do for me. Whereas I have normally found that like the very first sip of beer is the best and good wine, it's usually the very last sip that's the best. Hmm. And so there was an inversion there, and what you did, what you've done with the with the the glow ups is is make a beer that drinks like a wine, you know, in that way, because that balance and that movement it's like a moving target, yep. and it and it evolves, and so you keep chasing it, yep. um, and it doesn't just sort of plateau and then start to taper off, which a lot of beer does, um, and I, I know there are, you know there are sort of session beers, right, which are meant to be lighter and and leaner and maybe a little more acidic, so that they keep Interesting, longer, mm-hmm. um, but your those sour beers are fantastic for that. You know, you just yeah. keep wanting more of them because they're 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 um, they're thirst quenching, but they're also intellectually still stimulating. So.
1: Absolutely, yeah, and and I I really I really think there's some some value to having a drink that sort of resets your palate mm-hmm. um, when you're eating, of course, and and just throughout the course of the day, you know, if you need like a little mental uh, break, having a beer that's Thirst quenching and, and sort of balances you back out. I think it's kind really... of wakes
0: you up too. Yeah. Because it's, it's, I mean, they're pretty assertively sour. Yeah. So yeah. They, they get your attention. Yeah. Like you, did, you said, you slapped in the face, right? I mean, yeah. it's maybe not quite that violent, but it definitely, like, you can't ignore it. Yeah. Um, and you make those seasonally depending on what's available. So citrus in the winter and, and local fruit in the summer kind of thing?
1: We do, and we're getting more into banking um, citrus zest and season. Um, we've been working with this great. A place in Jersey who's a, a Japanese greenhouse. Oh wow! Um, yuzu lemons, yuzu underscore lemons on, huh. on Instagram. Wow! They're amazing, okay. and we ha- we got some amazing yuzus from them that we used. Um, and there's some calamansi coming up as well. Cool. And um, all sorts of other exotic citrus from them. They have they have relationship with a lot of places in uh, California as well that they place orders per. Per their their clients' orders, um, but it's really beautiful. That's Island fantastic. So you get yeah. local citrus, which is uh, pretty exciting. Pretty great for New York, right? Yeah, yeah. And then um, other things like the the stone fruit, we obviously have to go up to the Hudson Valley and just mm-hmm. sort of scrape every farmer's you know inventory and try right, But you can
0: take ugly fruit, right? So you can, or do you not?
1: We there... generally no, no. You know, you'd think so, but it's it's not. Unfortunately, it's not like that because. The quality of the fruit is so important because it's like a direct translation so like what you would put into your mouth is what you taste in the beer which is part of the charm of the beer but unfortunately you can't take bruised fruit you can't take bruised fruit you would generally we get fruit slightly under ripe ripen it and then process it and freeze it and then hold it for for brew day but that allows us to Harvest peaches in um, peach season in New York State, and then save them all year long, and then you know we'll be right. able to really... So just, so like
0: juice, or you sort of puree them and then add the pulp. To we them? just,
1: we, yeah, we don't even puree them. We just uh, ripen them and and literally just squish them in our hands and mm-hmm. drop them in the bucket with the pit. With the pit. Yeah, yeah. the pit. We're not distilling, so there's no there's sure. No, 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 no I, get that, I get that. or whatever. No,
0: because you know when I made those meads, I left the pits and everything. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it's, you know, in contact with the beer for less than two weeks normally. Mm-hmm. Um, and it adds a really nice sort of almond yeah, flavor, um, especially the cherries from the Hudson Valley. Yeah, that they have amazing. the strongest almond. It's yeah. that
0: benzaldehyde thing they've got pretty yeah. strongly.
1: It's interesting. And they also, those cherries also produce um, the
0: cinnabinoid, the yeah. cinnamon flavor. Yeah, yeah they do. <laughs> they do. It, it's, um, it's really interesting to me how... You know, cherries are obviously one of the, one of the great fruits of the world, but the this, the pit of a cherry is almost a completely different animal in terms of the aromatics and the yeah. the, the the complexity and the, it's yeah. kind of and hard. from variety
1: to variety, it's yeah. you know very different. Um, so we uh, we use the Morellos and we also use um, uh, Montmorency's, mm-hmm. um from the Hudson Valley. And um, we're developing more and more relationships with those farmers, but right now we're sort of like you know they're they're getting used to brewers coming to them. Mm-hmm. But in general, their business is to harvest underripe fruit and try to take it to the market. So sure. we're trying to get them to the harvest ripe fruit and mm-hmm. give it to us. And right, it's right. it's a lot it's a lot to sort of convince them right now. But I bet.
0: Yeah. But well, I guess if you're placing a large enough order, it's an incentive for.
1: It's, it's, I think it's going to take years, and mm-hmm. you know, this, is, this was my second year, and um, the farmers that I made good relationships with the first year were great this year, and you know, I made a lot of new relationships, so it's just going to be about fostering those, and eventually it would be amazing to sort of lease trees from yeah. them, yeah. to be able to harvest the fruit the way we want, which would be in, as it ripens, at full ripeness, and then process it and freeze it. But uh, that, that would mean more trips, right? Cause it would definitely be a lot more labor-intensive and more trips. But um, you know, you have to do what it takes. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, as long
0: as you can recoup, you know, it's, it's, then it's a viable business, right? Yeah, absolutely. But you know, we, I mean, we take
1: that and we preserve it in alcohol indefinitely. We haven't seen these beers go bad even
0: after you know a couple of years in mm-hmm. cans. Yeah. Well, yeah. I imagine again the, the combination of there's no sugar, but the salt, the acidity. Um, those are great preservatives. They're
1: they're great, so it's worth it. And you know we have to charge a little bit more for those beers, but it's you know we're learning how to sort of signal our clients that that it's a quality product. We're putting into nice champagne bottles now. Oh yeah, is that out. what I saw in
0: the in the background of the other space? Those, exactly. big, those
1: were magnums too, right? Yeah, we have magnums and seven fifties, and then we brought
0: the we got the little matching three seventy fives as well. That's sweet, so you can order um, a split. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so what's the, uh, I mean, you've only been doing it for two years, so you don't know, but in terms of age worthiness, I mean, are these going to be like your rhubarb wine from when you were a teenager? Are they going to stand up to decades? I
1: think? think they'll stand up, not decades, no, um, I don't, I think it would need more sugar. Um, right. And I have to believe the color is going to fall out pretty Yeah, the quick. pink one will probably get a little. Yeah. So, I mean, like all beer it should be, it, I, you know, we encourage people to drink it fresh mm-hmm. and it, you know, it gets better for. Six months to a year, and then it, you know, it isn't gonna get any better. But we haven't seen it really, really fall right. off yet. Well,
0: it's kind of a summer jam too, right? I mean, it's yeah. it's it's your outdoor barbecue and picnic situation. Yeah, great with cherry pie, I bet. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Right. Well, we're actually um, working on a rec- uh, recycled bagel um, version of this beer. So really, we're working Ooh, with tell me local, about that. That's cool. A local bagel guy. Um, uh, Noah from um, Black Seed mm-hmm. is uh, approached us to, uh, you know, take his leftover bagels and see if we could pull sugars from them, and ferment it and see if we could, you know, do do a beer together that way. So we are so far it's it's looking pretty successful, um, and part of what he uses in. His bagels is um, this local honey, so we tried to, in- instead of using some fruit uh, to condition it at the end, um, we used a little bit of his honey. Um, so it's in the fermenters now. It's, it's, it's a big question mark.
0: Yeah. And so you're at your, your bottle conditioning, like you're carbonating secondarily yep. in bottle yep. mm-hmm. with, the, with the added sugar. And you're doing that with all of these or just this one?
1: Uh, we do that with everything that we bottle uh-huh. uh, right now, um, and we are sort of just ramping up to do more of this bottling. Um, we've done a couple of batches uh-huh. um, with mixed success. We have to get our technique down a little yeah, bit. Yeah, sure. Well, yeah,
0: that's, I don't know. I haven't heard of a bagel beer before. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, The bagel beer is going to be delicious. I bet. Well, you know, the
0: Noma fermentation book goes into, uh, you know, making miso with stale bread and and things like that. And, and, uh, you know, speaking of German food traditions, pumpernickel is, uh, you know, you use a soaker of stale, stale rye to give it part of its sourness, you know, and it's great because I'll take my stale heels and you soak them and then you add your sourdough starter and some new flour and you've got this incredibly complicated Mm. thing uh, that's just gorgeous and there's no waste. That's amazing. Yeah. And, and kvass, of course, right? Absolutely, you know. yeah, yeah, so there's. So that's something else I wanted to ask you about is, um, you know, you guys produce a fair amount of waste product, right? Now yeah. Upstate, a lot of these people are now f- using that to feed pigs and whatnot here, yeah. that's less of an option. So do you have any kind of ideas about how to? We've done some
1: collaborations with chefs. Mm-hmm. Um, Andy uh, from Mark Forgione, uh took some of our grain and was, you know, we came up with this technique because the, the spent grains are rather fibrous Uh Uh, they're mostly you know the whole husk of the the barley kernel um so we had this idea to put it on sheet trays and sort of kiln it maybe even toast it a little bit but Mm -hmm. dry it all the way out and then re-grind it so we could get a finer product and we did that you know we did that we actually ran it through the mill quite a bit and created a really fine um flour out of it Mm -hmm. and that integrated a lot better and it sort of like infused the the bread that he made with it with this like toasty nutty malty flavor was actually wow. a huge success. It was really, That's really fantastic. nice. Yeah.
0: And is that, a, is that a situation where the labor outweighs any possible like financial viability or is it, you think there might be a, some kind of.
1: I mean, in the context of Mark Foggioni it's probably fine, but yeah. you know, as a, as a larger endeavor, um, it might be harder. Because how many, I don't know, pounds, tons of, of
0: spent mash do you produce a week a month uh, a lot a yeah. lot yeah
1: yeah a ton right now about and um luckily for us we have a um a partner that takes it and does make animal feed out of it oh, okay um they're they're a company in jersey that recycles mostly bakery you know uh waste into food for animals mm-hmm. which is great because it's going to a good cars Absolutely. and, and yeah, you know, yeah. being I mean, used but also it's a lot less expensive than is hauling it away.
0: Absolutely. And um, most... It's most seagulls, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, I mean even if your carting company tells you it's recycling it or, or um, using it for compost in New York City they're probably not. They're just yeah. like you know saying they are. Um, so these guys you know have a whole business built around it and it's a lot less expensive for us and it goes to a good place and you know we've also done other things like made a friend made dog biscuits out of them, <laughs> which is a classic. Yeah, and I like that. It's, it's interesting. We'd love to do more. We'd love to just have an animal to feed. We'd sure. Uh, it's tricky in this part of the world, though. Very tricky.
0: Yeah. And then, you know, if, uh, if you guys end up getting goats upstate, you still have to transport it, so it becomes complicated. It's expensive. a complicated thing. It is. You know,
1: and, you know, at the end of the day, it's, you know, 900 pounds of wet. Stinky, yeah. sticky. You got to shovel it at one end, then you have to shovel it at the other end. It's yeah. a lot of work. Yeah, it's a lot of work,
0: and it's you know
1: in the summer times, does not smell great.
0: No. Yeah. no. Well, that's. Good. I mean, it sounds like you've got for the time being that that, that this feed company is a good solution. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I like the I like this sort of uh, the flower idea with all the complexity that comes with yeah. that. Yeah,
1: that was by far the the most successful you know use of it that I've I've seen. And you know Andy's a great chef, so he handled it very well as well but, I bet
0: I bet I mean do you have any idea what kind of percentage of that flour he used in a loaf of bread or something? uh
1: it's really I think at you know at most a quarter uh-huh. you know that's the kind of the best you can hope for because well, yeah, it, it doesn't it's, have any it's been gluten sort of structurally compromised yeah. by
0: all the, the cooking and the fermenting and exactly yeah. yeah interesting so what's um so what's your line now how many do you have now up from the original two and then four and whatever? We have probably a little over a dozen beers mm-hmm. that we you know
1: rotate throughout the year. Um, are they
0: all seasonal or you have a couple that are just?
1: No, we have beers that just stick with us all the time. And um, the beer that we make and sell the most is our lager, the old Bavarian lager. Um, that makes up about 50% of our production. Mm-hmm. And um, we make a handful of ales, including the Recurring Dreams, which is the based on the Northeast style of, of pale ale, the hazy
0: pale ale. Oh right, we were talking about it a little while ago. Yeah, exactly. And you uh, said there's, you've, you've come, you, there are some methods, or you've, you've discovered some methods for sort of encouraging or cultivating that kind of hazy quality? Yeah, the
1: haze is, is engineered. So we do, you know, yeast choice is a really big um, part of that. So we choose a yeast uh, that has very low flocculation. So it's, you know, staying hazy as much as possible. Um, even in, even in you know after it's done fermenting and then using a lot of raw grains um, and oats um, which just create a lot of this this protein you just end just, up with a lot of protein yeah, and starch and stuff floating in just in there. floats in there and um, the Lupulin when you dry hop it, it sticks to that stuff and it sort of like creates this little structure where it can stay buoyant in the beer um, so it you know, instead of sitting as a sludge and getting weird in the yeah, bottom Yeah, it doesn't precipitate
0: out and get weird in the yeah, bottle
1: it, can or whatever. It stays in the in the, um, in the body of the beer and you get this great, like, kind of fluffy you know, creamy mouthfeel. Yeah, yeah, it's, and, and
0: it's delicious. I mean, it, it's, it, it adds this element of sort of luxury and, and hedonism to it.
1: Yeah, yeah. and that, that style is based around, you know, that those textures and, and that technique of suspending, you know, unintegrated lupulin in the beer um, and then also this idea of hop candy character where you're you know you have enough beautiful malt flavors to Mm -hmm. balance out the um all the hops that you put into this thing Mm -hmm. and ideally it's you know it's in balance it's sort of like perfectly in check and then from there the hop character is just all aromatics right um but then you know it could be relatively bitter but you don't taste it because it has all the 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 delicious malt to kind of balance it out so it creates And, and
0: do you do you have particular pairings um depending on how you malt something and what you're malting exactly do you have particular hops that you know are going to kind of play really nicely with like some combinations in mind or do you sort of start over each time with a custom blend
1: Generally yeah and and you know styles use this for a reason and yeah. that's you know that's it um there's things that go together well and you can you can come up with new combinations that work and there's new hops that come out all the time and mm-hmm. um but in general yeah there's you know Old world wants old
0: world and new world wants new world. Yeah. yeah. And you, uh, I mean, we had talked about growing hops. New York used to be, back in the olden days, the main source of American hops and now it's all in the Northwest. because. Sure. The weather is more stable, and, and that they are resi- they are susceptible to certain blights. I guess that are downy mildew is the big one yeah. for New
1: York State, and and hops especially are really susceptible to it. It doesn't you know it doesn't even live on the surface of hops. It represents itself as like a viral infection in the oh, wow. plant. Oh, serious. So it's it's pretty serious. And it ruins so, it. And it ruins it, and then it spreads really fast, mm. and you know, so it's just un- unchecked. It. And and you know, 1910 in upstate New York, it just
0: probably just ran rampant you know and so you might run a few lines up the side of a building here just for laughs but you wouldn't look to produce it locally or find somebody who would
1: yeah i mean you you could do it i know people do it um but hop farming is difficult and the hop plant will grow really well um but whether you get a commercially viable yield is is you know dependent on you know how pummeling the thing with nutrients and then if you're in a downy mildew susceptible area you know probably spraying it or yeah. you know doing something like that which i I've, i'm not really into spraying or yeah. you know i you
0: know I'm a, I'm a lazy farmer anyways i don't well yeah but i mean yeah. uh, i mean organic farming is not it's exactly lazy but you do you know when you're going to as much trouble as you are to get the very best and very specific ingredients that you want the last thing you need is a whole bunch of weird petrochemicals and neurotoxins sprayed all over it. Yeah,
1: or even copper. Or you know? even copper, yeah. 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 Um, yeah. even if it's biodynamic, right? Yeah, and yeah, hops hops also just take so many nutrients, it's it's really, is, it,
0: is it hungry that way?
1: It's so hungry, yeah. And they're you know, they grow twenty feet tall and twenty yeah. feet down and their roots just need so much water and so many nutrients that, you know, when you look at those beautiful fields in the Yakima Valley, they are pummeling them and in a year they'll deplete all the soil of their nutrients. And so they're, you know, putting pounds per square foot uh, on um, their plants. Really? Yeah.
0: Because you just, you kill the soil that way. You can't, like it becomes a super fun site because you have so much metal in your soil. Well, yeah,
1: not if you do it organically, but mm-hmm. to get that amount of chicken shit in there. It's oh, okay, like really... so you're not, I thought you
0: were talking about copper. So, no, not no. compost. Yeah, yeah. We but use, it has um, to be a lot of compost. Yeah,
1: we use the pelletized. on We have a small hop farm in Michigan um, on my parents' property um, as this sort of experiment. Um, mm-hmm. And that's going on now? Yes. Oh, wow. mm-hmm. We're in our fifth year. Okay. Um, we got a little harvest. of We got 80 pounds of pelletized Cascade off it this oh, year nice. that we we're, were using on well, our beers. So. Oh, I didn't know about that. Yeah, That's great know. news. They're at the, the beers with them are, are at the tasting room now. Um, and so we are using pelletized chicken, you know, shit to compost that field. Mm-hmm. And um, it works, but you have to put a lot on
0: Is it perennial there or do you have to, are you growing from seed? No, it,
1: um, they're rhizomes. So, uh, they are actually all female plants. Um, the male plants, um, don't produce hops and generally ruin hops by, you know, making them go to seed. Just like weed, which it's related to, right? It's exactly right. Yeah. So they're all, um, female clones of each other. Um, Which makes
0: them more disease-susceptible, unfortunately, because they don't have enough diversity to...
1: Correct, you know, and there's a program, especially in Michigan, and and I bought through this program that's certified, you know, disease-resistant and not, you know, not, you're at least not buying a plant that has the downy mildew um, virus to start. Um, you may get it later. Uh, And the first couple of years, it's really slow. You're just sort of training them and letting them, you know, take... Root and then they start um, shooting up 20 feet a year and um, producing hops. It's pretty exciting. That's great. Yeah.
0: And is this just for your use? I mean, it's never going to be big enough for you to become a.
1: No, it was. The, I had this idea to do some vertical integration with my parents' farm and create a reason to go up there and uh-huh. you know hang out with my parents and you know do a project up there. Um, and also just have access to the highest quality hops and really understand that ingredient and doing it, growing hops as a you know, a farmer, really taught me a lot about that ingredient that I wouldn't have known otherwise. And um, I think the biggest sentiment that I took away from it is hop farmers um, are focused on yield mm-hmm. and the size of their cones and hop users, the breweries, are more focused on um, aromatics, mm-hmm. which are better actually in smaller hops and if they're harvested a little bit earlier. So okay. in general, farmers are sort of like pummeling with all the micronutrients and stuff that creates some off flavors in beers. If you ever get a beer that's a hoppy beer that tastes like onion mm. or garlic, um, especially, or green onions, mm. that is a potentially hop field that's over sulfur their field to try to amp up the aromatics, but it's sort of overdone it. Um, and pushed it into this sort of, like, weird... Yeah, that's
0: not a flavor I think I would probably enjoy for the most part.
1: It's unfortunately become a little bit of a, you know, a thing in um, the craft movement, but I think hop farmers are getting better at balancing it out. Um, But in general, you know, I think brewers would be happier if hop farmers harvested a little sooner because the aromatics are more intact. You know, once you start smelling the aromatics heavily out of the, the hop comb, it's kind of too late, mm. um, and that's when they're harvesting them because, you know, they're...
0: So it's, it's similar to the conversation you're having with the fruit farmers, too, that you yeah. need them, you need it a slightly different time than, than yeah. they think they might, that they think it's perfect.
1: Well, whatever's convenient for them, yeah. which for, I mean, the fruit growers, just out of practicality, they're harvesting thousands of pounds of fruit that har- they harvest it hard right. and then ripen yeah. it, but that's not the best thing for the flavor of the fruit
0: right. by far unfortunately. Right. Right. Yeah. But in the hops case you actually want them to take it a little unripe and, Yeah, and, you know, and then the hops are the better opposite for you. Yeah. yeah. You yeah. get
1: more like delicate, you get more sort of citrusy flavors as opposed to like the more sort of veg flavors yeah. on the Yeah.
0: Uh, and so has your now intimate relationship with the hop plant has that given you any ideas or created a new a new beer for you in some way or a new relationship, a new
1: idea? It, Taught me about new varietals, and um, it taught me definitely how to select hops a little better. Um, you know, just looking at the cones and, and understanding what's going on, um, and just looking at even pelletized hops, you can you can look at the color of them and really see how they were treated or how many leaves went into the harvester. Yeah. Um, and it has inspired uh, beers in the in the sense that we use our hops off the field and, and build beers around them. So we're, you know, probably building beers a little differently than we would. And, right. and one and super year, super unique, right? Like, yeah. like, unlike anything else. And one year we got this amazing crop of Santium, this, this, which is a German, um, hybrid.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and it was incredible. Just like tasted like lemon drops. Wow! Amazing. And that inspired a whole, a whole season of Pilsners for us, um, uh, early on in, in the breweries. Uh, history.
0: That's really cool. So, um, one last thing and just, I'm interested in what is happening to the, cause you guys, obviously, you know, we're in a, this, this one space and the other space is going to be ready really soon. Is anything kind of happening to the product line or is there just going to be more of it once the expansion's done? Yeah. So when we, at the end
1: of our expansion now, the brewery on Laqueer street is going to be focused on, um, Berliner Weisses and specialty beers um, focused on um, local ingredients and more experimental beers, possibly even mixed fermentation beers Mm -hmm. um, that are all sort of focused on packaging into bottles and cans, but sort of more precious beers and more limited um, Mm -hmm. quantity beers. Whereas uh, the production here in Red Hook, uh, we're really trying to build a pipeline of Pilsner and Lager. As if we were, you know, a local brewery in Munich, Germany, producing, you know, beer on, on that quality, but for New York City. Uh-huh. Um, so
0: mostly keg, not not a lot to distribute.
1: Will will it'll it will be mostly kegs, but we will also sell bottles and cans out of the, the tasting room, uh-huh. um, and probably it'll make it out to the market as well. Uh-huh. Um, so we'll do a mix, but yeah, it'll be the idea is to provide New York City with. Perfect, affordable, delicious lo- local lager.
0: Nice. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, thanks for talking to me. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is this is a joy. Travis Kaufman, folksbeer.com, FB Brewery on Instagram. Stop by for a pint if you're in the neighborhood. It's good stuff. I'm cookblog on Instagram, cookpod.net theme music by my son milo barrett smilobee.com and remember every single artisanal craft beer you ever drank ended up in the toilet